Hey, thanks for downloading the podcast. If you want to listen live, all you have to do is download the iHeartRadio app and search for Fantasy Sports Radio Network. Also, if you want to catch this show on video, be sure to check out Zumo TV, channel 719. That's where you can find SportsGrid's Fantasy Sports Network. Enjoy the show, and thanks so much for listening. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this edition of Football Full Circle, talking about college football this hour and welcoming in co-host of College Football Today right here on the grid, Rich Giamanella. Rich, how you doing, bud? Doing great, Mike. Getting ready for the uh, long weekend ahead, and uh, hopefully you are as well. Yeah, I appreciate it. So um, George and I have been talking about uh, NFL and college on on many of these shows, but what we want to do is really dive into – One of the stories this week that occurred, and it was, I think, another example, and when you were on the program last week, we talked about this, but yet another example of players utilizing their platform in order to make their voice be heard and the voice of many be heard. And in this instance, last week we talked about Marvin Wilson voicing his opinion. In this instance, it's a couple of former college players, but yet famously tied to one of the top programs in the country. Deshaun Watson and DeAndre uh, Hopkins utilizing their platform for activism in getting the name of the Clemson Honors College changed. Now, prior to this week, it was named for John C. Calhoun. He's the former vice president of the United States. He was a slave owner, a slavery advocate. His viewpoints are thought by many to have led to the South's secession in the early 1860s. And for all of these many years, the Clemson Honors College was named after John Calhoun, whom helped found the university. He owned a plantation on the land that some of the university owns. But I brought all of this up to say that, isn't it amazing how in this short period of time, players, Rich, can utilize their voice, their platform to get something changed. It's now just the Clemson University Honors College. I could not agree more, Mike. A big proponent of... Hearing the voices of these young men, you know, we talked about it, you touched on it, Marvin Wilson, Florida State, keeping it in the ACC now with these two ex-Clemson players. And and this is an example, and I think it's a great uh, example for young people who maybe feel disenfranchised that their voices can and will be heard. And I, I think that's the climate we're in right now. And you know, I don't want to rewrite history. I, I think all of us should be aware of history. Uh, history uh, sometimes we don't want to repeat it. Sometimes we do. This is an example where we would want to distance ourselves from that history. That is part of the history. But should it be on the Clemson campus? I, I don't believe so for all students and, and, and particularly African-American students to know that that building is named after someone who was a proponent of slavery and a slave owner. Again, not trying to rewrite history, but to honor that individual on the honors building, I think is just patently wrong. And I think this is a sign of progress. But more important, I, I think, again, and, and we three of us talked about it last weekend, I, I think it does show that there's an opportunity for these voices to be heard from young student athletes. And I think they should. I think it's going to encourage more student athletes, male, female, black, white, to get involved and to have their voices heard. Yeah, George, part of this DeAndre Hopkins uh, earlier this week had revealed that he purposely omits the university's name from player introductions before NFL games because he, quote, felt this oppressive figure during his three years at Clemson. Watson, who also attended the university for three years, tweeted that the, quote, school should not honor slave owner John C. Calhoun in any way. So it's these two teammates, players, amongst many others, that... Uh, gathered on to, they, they obtained 20,000 signatures in a short period of time, and this happened all very quickly. See, I think this is great, because I think you need players who have the stature of DeAndre Hopkins, Deshaun Watson, to stand up for this. Nonviolently, they got their petitions, uh, they let their voices be heard, and there's no way that uh, Calhoun should have had his name there. No way for what he's done in his past. So I, th- I think this, I applaud them for that. I think, we, I think we should see more of this throughout throughout the country over and over again, uh, I'm not saying for every little thing, but Calhoun's not a little thing. Yeah. That's a big thing. And the fact that it's been there for as long as it was probably is stunning to some people. I know we don't like change in this society at all, but I applaud them for what they did. And I think this is the advantages or the benefits that could come out of this. And if you, especially when you do it in a peaceful way. Uh, 
I don't want to say the right way because the right way doesn't always work. But if you do it in the way that really it should be done, you can get positive results. Yeah, and Clemson University President Jim Clemens said Friday that he wants the school to, quote, be a place where all our students, employees, and guests feel welcome. It's not the first time that Calhoun's name actually has been removed from a prominent university. His name uh, was removed from Yale University Residential College in 2017 after years of debate and protest. So uh, for whatever reason, and clearly we've had an intense amount of uh, peaceful protests in the last couple of weeks, Rich, and it has led to a wave of public criticism and support for removing names like this, and it, it finally reached a critical mass. I, I know this is a football show, but this is all meshed together. Look, this is where we are in June in 2020. A lot of these things are meshed together, and the players who are not on the field are utilizing their voices in order to create a a soundboard for people to finally listen to these long, legitimate criticisms? Uh, it's it's progress that, quite frankly, Mike, I've been waiting for. I think it's social progress that is good for every individual in our country. I genuinely believe that. I, I think uh, this was a sea change that caught me by surprise because we've had a lot of these George Floyd incidences in the past. We've seen them before on camera. There was something uh, about this situation in Minneapolis that was different than anything we've seen before. Uh, we've seen that in the streets. Uh, we, it's been uh, crossing genders, crossing races, crossing ages. Uh, that makes me pleased. I think we're a better country when equality uh, is the norm. And, and we've been making strides over the years and the generations, but this is something that is abundantly different. And, and I think, you know, I have two teenagers. Uh, they think differently about race than my parents and grandparents did. And, and yeah. that's something that continues to change generationally. It seems as if we're getting to a point where we are more colorblind. I hope that's something that continues. And, you know, it, it raises a couple of interesting topics. We saw something that I didn't expect. Uh, I, I know this is a football show, but uh, NASCAR uh, Confederate flags no longer welcomed. Uh, right. To me, that's uh, common sense. Uh, I know there are some people who are going to be pissed off. They're going to think it's too PC. But if you're making people uncomfortable with those flags, why is it such a bad thing if we don't have those at sporting events? I'll tell you right now, from an economic standpoint, you're going to start to see sponsors pulling out of people that are resistant to that level of change. And then it brings up another topic, one that you guys could discuss more eloquently than I can, but the entire Colin Kaepernick situation. You know, Colin Kaepernick was peacefully protesting for what he thought was a criminal justice issue that we were having in the country, lost his job, has never played football uh, since that point. I guess it's been four years. What do we do at this point? How, what is the reaction towards Roger Goodell and the NFL, uh, which is going to really create some interesting uh, uh, optics this fall when the NFL returns? Yeah, you, your comments are eloquently said, but your comments also led me to think of something that is, is really important. It's why, why I wanted to talk about this topic initially, George, and it's that a lot of times I feel like because people are in a certain profession or are worried that somebody's looking over their shoulder, they feel pressure about not speaking up. We talked about it in terms of the NFL and the players that thought, a few players, many players thought, a few years ago, Akeem Hicks said it, that as soon as I kneel for this anthem, I'm fired. And what is different about this is that I think many times people look towards their organization their job, the league, whatever silo we're in to provide some sort of guidance. But it, this type of change has to come from the individuals. Deshaun Watson and DeAndre Hopkins in NASCAR, the players, the drivers, excuse me, got together, made videos, supportive comments of social awareness and racial justice and they said, you know what? We're not doing it anymore. So NASCAR, in conjunction with them, says, we're done. No more flags. If you don't want to race anymore, see you later. That's probably the way it has to be done, right? I mean, in certain ways. I mean, I do understand about the job thing. I mean, listen, I'm a Cowboy fan. 
Ezekiel Elliott kneels. <laughs> Nothing's happening to Ezekiel Elliott. Yeah. All right. It doesn't happen. But Noah Brown kneels. Yeah. Maybe he's cut in two weeks. Yeah, he was already a borderline roster play, and this was what what pushed him over. So I, I get the players feeling that way, and I think it's the right feeling, by the way. I just do. I know if I was in this situation and I was that, you know, that 49th person on the 53-man roster, I'm probably not kneeling. Probably yeah. not. I got to take care of my family. Got to work. You know, I may feel strongly. I may want to kneel. I may want to put my fist in the air. Wherever you want to do it, but uh, I would. I probably wouldn't have done it back then. I think it'll be more. It'll be freer this year. With uh, I mean, we're seeing a lot. Teams are okay. Woody Johnson always okayed it with the Jets, right? Yeah. And now we see that Bill O'Brien is saying that he'll kneel with his players. I would expect that everybody on Houston then kneels. That the entire roster, the entire what forty, whatever their roster is now with the new CBA, forty-eight uh, man roster kneels before the uh, the national anthem. The only problem is if everyone's kneeling, it's going to take away from it a little bit. Mm. Everyone's kneeling. You know, everyone's doing it now. Now it's a new thing, so it'll take away from the specialty of it. When it was just a few players there. Not that there's any, nothing you can do about that because you want everyone to kneel, but eventually that won't be a story anymore because everyone is doing it. And then fans, I'm sure, will be kneeling yeah. in support. I think that is the type of thing that will be pretty interesting too, right, Rich? There's obviously going to be – look. Oh, yeah. It's we're, we, have, we have, unfortunately, another side of this argument where people feel that it is disrespectful to the flag, but – there will be disagreements amongst fans in stadiums as people yeah. kneel or do not. Yeah, I, I think everything, um, sadly, in our country has moved into two lanes, two distinct buckets. Um, uh, it's left, it's right, it's PC, it's not PC, it's progressive, it's uh, you know alt-right, whatever the case may be. Everything falls into that. But I just see a wave happening here where the overwhelming large majority of the public uh, the three of us included are just fed up with anything that uh, reeks of racism. Uh, I have my entire lifetime. To me, uh, you judge people right and wrong, and it stops there. Uh, I, I think we'd all be better off in America if that's the way people were judged. What happens in the stands, I think you're going to see a lot of creativity. I think you're going to see a lot of signs. And quite possibly, maybe the kneeling when it comes to the players could be replaced by something heretofore that that we don't know. Uh, but there's a tidal wave that is happening right now. I, Mike and George, I don't see that stopping anytime soon. I think there's legitimate, organic, authentic momentum that's going to continue throughout 2020. Yeah, really well said. And I think we're going to we, the fact that we don't have fans or as many fans. Uh, we might not see it in mass the same way we did, but maybe that continues into 2021 and beyond. So we'll get back to uh, the college football field in the next segment. We're going to talk about some of the hotter, younger coaches in the nation. Back after this on FFC and on the grid with Rich Germanello and George Kurtz. I'm Mike Blue. We'll be right back. SportsGrid.com. Betting insights and entertainment at your fingertips 24-7 as our team covers the most important topics in sports wagering. Real-time odds, predictive betting models, expert picks, and more. Want the edge? Then get on the grid. SportsGrid.com. Hey, everybody, we're back on Football Full Circle. Uh, follow us on Twitter at SportsGrid, on Instagram at SportsGridTV. If you want to follow us each individually, no, uh, nothing fancy here. It's at Rich Germanello, at George Kurtz, at Mike Blewett. So uh, topic that is really interesting that you brought up to me uh, as we're preparing for this show, Rich, is the number of coaches that are in prominent positions or are on their way to prominent positions that are on the younger side of things. You know, there have been 71 head coaching changes in the last three years. Think about the numbers there, that's pretty staggering, but it leads to more opportunities in many universities and, and football programs looking for that new voice that could perhaps relate to the players more. So do you see that as an overall trend that will continue to happen? Or is it just always going to be a few jobs here or there? Yeah, I, I see it as the start of a trend. I think it's been a trend for for a while, Mike. Um, you know, th this has quickly become a very young man's profession for a lot of different reasons. Uh, you know, back when 
the three of us were growing up, it wasn't a 12 months out of the year, 24 seven type of a cycle for college coaches. There were, there was downtime. There were opportunities to regroup and recharge. The season was a grind, but once the season was over, you could exhale. That really doesn't happen any longer uh, between recruiting, media opportunities, boosters. Uh, this really is a wire-to-wire -wire type of a profession, and that's why we see a lot of burnout, particularly in coaches that are north of 50. We've seen a lot of coaches under 40, under 45, getting their opportunities earlier and earlier in their tenure helps with recruiting, easier to connect with young recruits, and to have that stamina to go through the schedule 12 months out of the year is a lot more conducive to someone who's young. So as I started to look through the numbers, I was actually a little bit shocked as to how many coaches under 45, under 40. We have coaches now, head coaches, not assistant coaches, but head coaches 35 and under who have been successful. Names like P.J. Fleck, first at Western Michigan, then at Minnesota. Mike Norvell begins at Memphis, now at Florida State. So uh, it's a trend that I think is going to continue. And as long as we have the Lincoln Rileys so successful so early, I think ADs are going to be more apt to give it a shot if they have a hot uh, assistant or coordinator out there. Rich, i got a two-part question for you here. Uh, now, we were, you already talked. You brought, when, we, when we were younger, things were different. Things were definitely different. Coaches got time to turn a program around, whether it was in the NFL or, or college, right? You got years. Nowadays, because maybe it's because of Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, shows like this, where we don't give anybody any time. Yeah. You don't turn around immediately. Next. Who's next? Uh, do you see that as a problem with coaches just don't get enough time? And I asked your, your compatriot, Joe Lisi, this yesterday. If you could be a coach, would you rather be a coach in college and have to recruit players or the NFL and have to motivate players? Yeah, I, I personally would choose the latter. Uh, I would rather be dealing with adults. There, there's a level of um, uh, angst and anxiety and stress in dealing not just with 18, 19, 20-year-olds, but in many cases, their families as well. And you know, I don't know if Joe touched on this or not, but it's getting harder and harder for college coaches, not just to motivate and manage these young men, but also to keep them motivated throughout their tenure. And listen, I've said it before, and I'll say it again, I'm all about the players. So players being able to transfer and do what's best for their career, I have no issue with that whatsoever. But now you have kids, you know, who in the past would have grinded until their junior and senior year to get that opportunity for a starring role, for a starting role. Now those guys are hitting the transfer portal very early in their tenure. So you, you invest a lot of time and effort and energy into recruiting and landing those four-star kids. And then boom, one year, two year into it, they're not getting enough playing time and they're gone. So lots of challenges with college, me personally, my personality, I would rather try to motivate adults than to manage young adults. That's just me. And I lost track of the first part of your question there, George, as I rambled on. <laughs> the first part was, uh, uh, do, do coaches get enough, in your opinion, do coaches get enough time nowadays, I guess, to institute their, their program, their, their plays, what they want to get done? Or is it just because of this society? It's just, no, nope, sorry, two years, you're done. Yeah, no, I, I don't think there's enough time. To me, I, I, I believe unless it's a complete dumpster fire or there are off-field issues, I'm thinking four years. And, and it it's always depends on the program, too. What did you inherit? How much talent was there? What are the expectations from the fan base and the boosters? But I think you need four years, I, especially if it's a reclamation project and you're bringing in your new staff, your new players your new personnel, I, I think four years really should be the minimum. I could cite off countless examples. The one that comes to mind because it's local to me is Greg Schiano. And there are so many coaches that if you pulled the plug after two or three years because you weren't getting to bowl games, you weren't getting to championship competition uh, or contention early enough, you would have lost out on co uh, coaches that were extremely successful. So Bill Snyder at Kansas State, Greg Schiano at Rutgers, there's a long list that if you look at the first couple of years, you would have been like, boom, this guy's terrible. We have to get rid of him. But patience really pays off. Yeah. So 
Uh, back to some of the younger coaches, you know, you have somebody like Lincoln Riley. He's only 36 years old. He was groomed uh, by Bob Stoops to take over that position. And he's obviously had a tremendous amount of success. But when you see somebody like Lincoln Riley, who's, look, he stepped in right into a premier program. P.J. Fleck, as you mentioned, he was at um, Central Michigan and then Western, yeah. Western, sorry, Western Michigan and then on to Minnesota. Uh, do you feel like those guys is what is their next step? Uh, Oklahoma, from Oklahoma, there's nowhere to go but the pros. Unless you have a falling out with the AD or the university yep. president, you're not going to move from Oklahoma. Lincoln Riley's name keeps coming up every offseason. He doesn't really seem to be all that interested. If he wanted the Cowboys job, he sure as heck could have interviewed for it. Uh, and P.J. Fleck? Yeah, there's bigger jobs in Minnesota, obviously, but would his would he move on for the reasons that you're talking about? You know what? I've had a nice time. I've dealt with these families. I'm going to try it on the top level. Mike, you bring up excellent points. Uh, exactly where I was going to go regarding the Lincoln-Riley discussion, which is in terms of college, you know, above Oklahoma, not many programs. I, I mean, unless, you know, Nick Saban retires and Alabama comes calling Maybe you consider an Alabama. There might be two or three programs. Maybe he has it in his system that he wants to, to get out of Norman and go to L.A. if USC opens up. Those are possibilities, but he's really near the ceiling in terms of college football. So next for Lincoln Riley, if after four seasons he decides he wants to go, it has to be the NFL. I don't think there's any question about it. He pulls a Cliff Kingsbury uh, and goes to the NFL. P.J. Fleck is an interesting study because a great coach, and, and we've seen what he has done as a program builder. Very different than Lincoln Riley. You touched on it, Mike, too. He inherited a great situation from Bob Stoops, basically kept that going. I'm not sure if you could say he elevated because he hasn't won a national yeah. championship. Bob Stoops did, continues to win Big 12 titles. That's what Bob Stoops did as well. But P.J. is a program builder, He's also an acquired taste, though. Like, I'm not really sure if his rah-rah personality, which is great, and it worked in Kalamazoo, and it's working now in Minnesota. Gophers 11-2 and last year. Uh, the Broncos, WMU, winds up going to the Cotton Bowl back in 2016. But if you're talking about a blue blood program, let's say an Ohio State, a Michigan, uh, a Texas, I'm not completely convinced that those fan bases or those administrations would like a P.J. Fleck. It's sort of that little engine that could. It's a bit of an off-the-radar program. That's why I thought when he went from Western Michigan to Minnesota, that actually was a perfect fit for her, his personality. Let's take this program that is at best 7-5 and five and see if he can elevate it. All right, so we'll keep on the young head coaches here. How about Jeff Scott, uh, South Florida? Is he ready to become a head coach, or did he get the job because he went 70-5 and five as the co-OC at Clemson? Yeah, I, I, it's a great point, George. And, and, you know, one of the things that we've, saw, we've seen at Clemson with Dabo Sweeney is uh, obviously wildly successful, a couple of national championships, uh, you know, all of the great recruits he gets. He's done a really good job, by and large, of keeping his best assistants from leaving. So the culture, the pay has kept his assistants from taking head coaching jobs, and they've had opportunities. So you look on defense, Brent Venables, one of the top five defensive coordinators in all of college football, has had opportunities, has had job offers, but has said, you know what, I'm being paid uh, into the seven digits, love what I have here, I'm staying put. Jeff Scott is the first one who has left the nest, 39 years old, spent the past couple of seasons as a co-offensive coordinator alongside Tony Elliott. Tony Elliott has had, has had opportunities as well, has not left. Now he goes to Tampa. I think it is an absolutely great opportunity because tremendous amount of talent in that region. It's been untapped. Charlie Strong did an awful job in his few seasons at USF. I think there's a lot of potential for that program, and I think he's going to take advantage of that for the Bulls. Yeah, it, the interesting thing about that in general is that I understand why Brent Venables wouldn't want to leave. And it's not that he doesn't want to be a head coach. It's that, unfortunately, the pool of programs that can actually win a national title has shrunk 
really considerably. It was never really all that large in the first place, but now we go into each year and there's like a half a dozen teams that can maybe win. We're, we're talking about a couple of them right now. So does Brent Venables want to be like Jeff Scott, try to take an AAC team and build them up to win that conference and then job jump? But right now, these jobs aren't open. Kirby Smart's 44 years old. Lincoln Riley's 36, uh, 36 years old. They're relatively young men not going anywhere in these high-profile jobs, right? Yeah, Brent Venables, is, uh, his, he's an, an alum of Kansas State. Now, Kansas, Bill Snyder retired a couple of years ago. Kansas State contacted Brent Venables. They kicked the tires to see if he had an interest in becoming a head coach in the Big 12. And to your point, he stayed put at Clemson because – you know, the ceiling at Kansas State in Manhattan, at, at best, you're going to get to a January 1st bowl game. You're probably not even competing for conference titles, let alone national championships. So he had the discipline to stay put. And, and it, there really are no more than half a dozen teams year in and year out. Are, are you replacing Jim Harbaugh at Michigan? You know, are you going out to L.A. for, for USC if Clay Helton is no longer the head coach? Uh, Texas is set with Tom Herman. So in terms of, you know, Ryan Day is 41 years old at Ohio State. Yeah. So in terms of the programs that have an opportunity to win a title, not a lot of those jobs opening up. Eddie Orgeron, right? I mean, he's up there in age a bit, but he's not going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, Texas and USC are the jobs that people will jump at because there's money and, and player pools uh, from which you can draw. So we'll come back after the break, talk a little bit more about the coaching situation, younger assistant coaches and group of five coaches in college football. We'll be right back. SportsGrid.com. Betting insights and entertainment at your fingertips 24-7 as our team covers the most important topics in sports wagering. Real-time odds, predictive betting models, expert picks, and more. Want the edge? Then get on the grid. SportsGrid.com. Hey, we're back on FFC again uh, here with Rich and George talking about some of the younger coaches in college football and guys that Rich feels Rich has is uh, co-host of college football today. Again, find him on Twitter at Rich Sirmanello, but guys that he feels might be primed for power five jobs in the future and some other assistant coaches that you may not be intimately aware of at home, but I think it's uh, names to put on your radar, put in your back pocket when your uh, alma mater, your favorite team uh, is looking for a new head coach. My alma mater just got a new head coach and he was one of the guys that would have fit this bill a year ago. Right, yep. Rich? Younger yeah, no guy. doubt. Jeff Halfley would have been yeah. perfect. Yeah, exactly. He's one of the guys we would have talked about in this group. So Let's start off with the uh, younger head coaches uh, on your list. And we start off with a guy named Will Healy from Charlotte. Tell us a little bit about his background. Yeah, and, and I love the setup, Mike, because that's that's exactly where my mind goes is, you know, we're talking about the Charlotte 49ers. I get it. I mean, even college football fans probably couldn't guess what conference they're in at this point. But this is more of a chess play, trying to look a couple of steps ahead as to once we get to November, December, coaching carousel, you know, who are those guys that could be in line for whoever the openings might be? You know, we talked in the past about hot seats. Well, once those hot seats actually turn into openings, who are the coordinators? Who are the head coaches? Now, in the case of Will Healy, the one thing everyone remembers, or if anybody knows Will Healy is, a you know, 35-year-old coach, first year at Charlotte, program that uh, was in the embryonic stages, never had participated in a bowl game, gets this team to seven and six and into the postseason. And the video of Will Healy with a minor 49er helmet, mm -hmm. shirtless, <laughs> in the locker room, strobe lights all over the locker room as he is crowd surfing his players, that's what you get in a 35-year-old Will Healy. So again, like P.J. Fleck, maybe an acquired taste, maybe not you know, exactly what you want in a head coach, but he already turned around in his early 30s, Austin P of the FCS, 0-11 year one, 8-4 year two. So again, Will Healy may not mean anything to you right now, but in the next year or two, he could be somebody who's up for a big promotion. 
All right, the next guy on our list as far as guys we're looking to see what they can do. Sean Lewis out of Kent State. What do we feel about him, Rich? Yeah, Sean Lewis, you know, Sean Lewis was a tight end at Wisconsin, right? And then he disappears as an assistant coach for a number of years and then winds up taking over at Kent State, a program that had been run into the ground by Daryl Hazel. Uh, major problems, one of the worst of the 130 FBS programs, and boom, year two under Sean Lewis, 34 years old, one of the youngest head coaches in all of college football, takes the golden flashes into the postseason. And again, I know everybody makes bowl games, so it's not what it used to be in terms of meaning, but when you're Kent State and you could be playing football in December, it's a really big deal. So Sean Lewis did a great job with that offense. Here's a name to keep in mind off the radar. Dustin Crum, their quarterback, 20 touchdown passes, two interceptions, one of the most efficient quarterbacks in all of uh, college football. And Sean Lewis and his offensive ingenuity had a big part to do with that. So again, He's the type of player, let's say Paul Christ at some point decides to move on to the NFL. Um, you know, this is a guy, Sean Lewis, who could take over a major program. Yeah. So, and again, I, to level set for everybody watching, it is, and listening, it is about trying to find these guys a couple of years before something huge exactly. happens with them. Jeff Halfley was, people three years ago, you would have asked most college football fans who Jeff Halfley is. They might not have known. Uh, Ohio State knew who he was, and now he's got a Power 5 job at BC. Luke Fickle is somebody that's obviously he's had an interesting path simply because he was an interim at Ohio State. Now he's at Cincinnati. But Luke Fickle, at 40 years old, is basically turning down jobs yep. because he knows he's going to get a huge one. And I would imagine, considering where his AD moved to uh, at USC, he's got that one circled on uh, taking an interview if and when Clay Helton isn't able to survive. But that that's just kind of a level set for everybody why we're having this conversation. And the next guy comes into somebody else's shoes that is in this same category, and that's Ryan Silverfield from Memphis. Yeah, Ryan Silverfield, 37 years old. Um offensive whiz kid, never even played college football, but has worked his way up the ranks, spent time in the NFL, college most recently as a Memphis assistant. And, and think about the Tigers and what this program has become. It is group of five out of the AAC, but the way this team has performed over the past five or six years really, Mike, almost at a power five level. They've gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with power five programs, beaten teams like Ole Miss out of the SEC, and the last two coaches have gone on and gotten ACC jobs. Justin Fuente uses Memphis as a launching pad to Virginia Tech, and then obviously, to your point, uh, most recently, Mike Norvell going from the Tigers uh, to Florida State. And I think Ryan Silverfield's going to take a couple of years if he could take what Norvell built, and he has a lot of talent right out of the gate. Brady White at quarterback, Kenneth Gainwell in the backfield, uh, lots of defensive talent. Offensive line is always good. So I, I think this is a 10-win program right out of the shoot. If he can maintain that in 2021, there's a young coach before his 40th birthday who could land a power five Just job. a quick follow-up there. Uh, sorry to interject, George, yeah, but no a quick follow-up because I was thinking about Memphis. What is it about Memphis that has allowed them to be so successful? Are they just threading the needle with getting great coaches in there uh, tenure after tenure? Because Tennessee, yeah. University of Tennessee, struggles in that they don't have a great local recruiting base compared to some of the other SEC teams, right? Memphis isn't even Tennessee, allegedly, but yet they are pumping out professional players and they have coaches that are moving on to huge jobs. Like Florida State's a massive job. Virginia Tech, considering who he was taking over for, it's not on the same level as it used to be. But when Justin Fuente took over for Frank Bieber, that's a huge job. 100%, Mike. Uh, just a flurry of great points. Uh, I'll take a couple of them. Uh, one, which a lot of people don't know, they, they assume that since Tennessee and the University of Tennessee is in the SEC, that automatically it is a fertile recruiting territory absolutely not the case, particularly when you compare it uh, to the rest of the South. Does not have the same talent as a Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama in terms of those states. So they're behind the eight ball in terms of recruiting territory. 
I think it's your initial point, which is that administration, AD on down, has done a great job with the last two hires. We'll see what happens with Silverfield. But look at what he was able to do going out to Arizona State because Mike Norvell was uh, Todd Graham's offensive coordinator and one of the Ballyhoo decorated offensive coordinators at that particular time, early 30s. He had the guts to go out and get an offensive coordinator, no head coaching experience, young at that stage of his career, and turn him into a head coach. And Norvell did a great job over four years and did the same thing with Justin Fuente, went into Texas. He was the TCU offensive coordinator at that point and turned him into a head coach. So to me, this is an administrative move that they've been able to take these young, offensive-minded coaches and just blow things up. I expect the same thing to happen with Silverfield, especially this year. He's going to get momentum. It's not like this is a reclamation project by any stretch. He recruited a lot of these kids. He's on campus. So I expect it to be business as usual for the Tigers. Okay, Rich. Now some off-the-radar assistant coaches. Uh, we'll start with uh, Graham Harrell at USC. Yeah, I mean, I love this uh, story. It's sort of that lineage of, uh, you know, it's, it's got Kingsbury written all over it. Uh, he is a disciple of Mike Leach, played for Mike Leach, coached briefly for Leach as well. And, and now Graham is the offensive coordinator at USC. He's going to get a lot of credit, guys, for what happened with Keaton Slovis last year. Graham Harrell's first season as an offensive coordinator was 2019, gets a true freshman quarterback. And that kid turns into one of the top five quarterbacks in the country. Uh, offensive mastermind, very young, no head coaching experience. But uh, trust me when I tell you, within the next year or two, regardless of what happens at USC, that offense is going to be fantastic this season. He's going to get a lot of the credit. I think you're talking about a head coach within the next uh, 20 to 24 months. He put up crazy numbers when he was a QB at Texas Tech, too. He, he Former Packer, by the yeah, way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, he backed up in Green Bay for, for a bit. But uh, that makes sense to me. Um, how about some other guys? We have uh, another former NFLer, uh, Brian Hartline at Ohio State. So, unfortunately, his head co he, he played at Ohio State. Yeah. And his head coach is Ryan Day, is only 41 years old. But it doesn't mean he can't go out and coach somewhere else, potentially. It, it reminds me a lot of uh, P.J. Fleck. Very young, uh, lots of personality, lots of energy. Uh, Brian is just 33 years old. But what he excels at more than anything else, even more, as a wide, more than a wide receiver coach, is he can recruit. And if you have a young coach that can attract talent to your program, he is going to be, at a minimum, an offensive coordinator, but max a head coach, I could see Brian Hartline, uh, Brian Hartline in the in the near future being a MAC head coach, and then using that as a springboard to something much bigger before his 40th birthday. I, I usually I would get the uh, the former uh, players here or former coaches to have to talk about here. Uh, Mike stole one for me, but how about uh, Jim Leonard? Fine, Mike, you stole, stole my guy here. Jim Leonard, Wisconsin. Yeah, Jim Leonard, 10-year NFL pro, extraordinarily smart former Wisconsin defensive back, now a Wisconsin defensive coordinator, has done a tremendous job over the past three seasons. Those Wisconsin coaches, they're adept at taking two- and three-star players, turning them into all Big Ten performers, turning them into NFL draft picks. Jim Leonard is no different, very savvy, very smart. Highly motivated, just 37 years old. And, and again, I love these discussions. I hope it doesn't bore the audience. I love these discussions because I know I can see where the head coaches are lurking as assistants or coordinators. And, and uh, if I was an agent, these are the guys I'd like to be representing because their contracts are going to be substantially bigger in the next couple of years. Yeah, and the last one, uh, as we close it out, Andy Avalos at Oregon seems like somebody on your radar, too. Yeah, we talked last week, guys, about Oregon and the Oregon defense, what Mario Cristobal has been able to do with that staff and that defense. The entire mindset, the philosophy of Oregon football has changed over the past couple of years. Defensively, no different. Andy Avalos was a star linebacker at Boise State, did a great job as the defensive coordinator. Now he has taken over that defense and much like the other assistants, Marcus Arroyo on offense just got the job at UNLV as a head coach. Andy Avalos, not far behind. Good stuff. So thanks uh, uh, for providing all that information. We'll continue to have Rich on 
uh, each and every week here on Football Full Circle. He is the co-host of College Football Today, along with Joe Lisi, who we also have on our shows each and every week. So we'll continue going through it. Good to talk to you as always, Richard. Talk to you again soon. Thanks, guys. Enjoyed it. Okay. Uh, we'll be back on FFC. George and I to close out this hour right here on The Grid. SportsGrid.com. Betting insights and entertainment at your fingertips 24-7 as our team covers the most important topics in sports wagering. Real-time odds, predictive betting models, expert picks, and more. Want the edge? Then get on the grid. SportsGrid.com. Closing out this hour of football full circle right here on the grid. Thanks for getting on the grid with us. George and I talking about a couple different topics. First of which, just a little cleaning up of the news on the NFL side of things. And that's Henry Ruggs. He is expected, George. He required stitches on this ridiculous injury, uh, moving a friend's furniture. But he is expected to be healthy. There's no puncture to his leg, no muscular damage. And uh, the dumbest injury in a while in the NFL is thankfully not a serious one. I don't know if I would call it a dumb injury. You know, oh, it's just an unfortunate. It's dumb. One. Probably. Not. <laughs> it's dumb to help your friend move. Pay for your friend's movers. Uh, it's probably not the brightest injury. <laughs> Uh, but in the end, it's no harm, no foul. There were no mini camps. I feel bad. Any- I don't want to seem not unsympathetic, George, but that was dumb. That's a dumb thing to do. Listen, if, if I'm the guy, yes, I'm hiring somebody. I mean, we've all had to move people. He's like 21. This. I get it. 21-year-olds, including this one, makes dumb decisions. Our awesome producer, Brian Rakowski, is like 22. I bet you he makes some poor decisions once in a while because he doesn't talk to his big bros on air. But... It is what it is. It's part of growing up. Now, you think he's ever going to help anybody move again? Right now, I'm thinking Brian's thinking one of my dumb decisions was to produce this show. <laughs> uh, of, uh, do I think it's going to help? No. I think that's right. the last time you'll help somebody. Learn the hard way. <laughs> hire somebody, buddy. I mean, I would have hired, hired somebody. Full out. I hate helping anybody move. It's just it's pain, pain in the neck. I don't think I've ever been cut or gotten injured other than being sore the next day but, yeah. or being aggravated at the move. Lord knows. But uh, let's face it, when you help with somebody else move, throwing stuff out the window sounds like a very good idea at times. Yeah. Yeah, just try to – let's get rid of some of this stuff. You don't need this. You don't need this. No. It's a lamp. It's a lamp. Get a new one. Get a new lamp. Uh, okay, so it looks like he'll be okay. Uh, happy for him. I'm glad it wasn't – I would really be – it would be upsetting to see somebody suffer a serious injury or something uh, as dumb as that. Okay, so you had a topic that you wanted to bring up. Uh, about some games. You you watched a game recently, last uh, earlier this week? Uh, I mean, it's what, my, my favorite game as a Cowboy fan, other than a playoff victory or a Super Bowl victory, uh, was the 1979 uh, game, last game of the season, uh, Cowboys versus the Redskins. And uh, I bring it up because, uh, A, it was Roger Starback's last game, last regular season game. And the game was actually a, a huge game because the winner was going to win the division. The loser was not going to get in the playoffs. They weren't what year is it? So, I'm sorry, what side? What year was it? 79. Got it. So, 79. It's a, uh, it's a game in which uh, the Cowboys were trailing 34-21 with about three minutes left in the game. And it was on TV back then. I guess it was the late game on a CBS. And I went to go take a shower. All right, it was over. And it was, the game was over. So, I went to go take a shower. I come out, and the Cowboys had made it 34-28, and they got the ball back. Uh, you know, and they were driving down the field. It's the... Uh, it's a place, the alley-oop pass to Tony Hill that wins the game. Mm-hmm. Joe Theismann, who was the quarterback from Washington at the time, he has a, they did an interview with him. And uh, it's a, I don't like Joe Theismann all that much. And I think a Cowboy fan sort of mandates that. But it's a good interview with him. And he's like, uh, he says that Starbuck was hot. He could see it coming. He wasn't missing anything. And he goes, Dallas had, I think, first and goal at the eight-yard line. Uh, they didn't, the first two plays didn't work. Third down, uh, Theismann goes, uh, he get, from looking at the field, like Tony Romo, he knew what play they were going to run. They were going to run where Tony Hill was going to do a little stop and go and do a little alley-oop to him. And Theismann's like, oh, no, this is not going to work. This is, this is bad for us, bad for Washington. <laughs> First he's like, oh, no, overthrow it. Then, oh, no, drop it. Then he's just like, oh, no. 
Tony Hill catch. It's just a, it's a, as a Cowboy fan to come back for two touchdowns in the last three minutes of a game, which included a very big stop on John Riggins on third and one. And that was at a time, George, where those comebacks just didn't really happen. He did for Dallas. I, I come back. Yeah, I I get it. But generally, there were not huge multiple score comebacks happening on a regular basis not in like the NFL. Like, like if you, as a Steelers fan, if you look back at their history of when they had a ten point lead or a fourteen point lead, they're nearly undefeated. They've lost very few games. It's like hundred, like two hundred games, practically, uh, over a hundred games to like one loss if they're winning by fourteen points or more. It's just the way teams always operated. You could run out the clock a little bit easier. You couldn't throw uh, with a with reckless abandon like you like you can now. You just couldn't do it back then. No, this is why all all the quarterback numbers from nowadays are going to blow away. I mean, your average quarterbacks. Are going to blow away numbers from 70s guys, you know, Bradshaw for the Steelers, Starback for the Cowboys. Different game, completely yeah. different game. I mean, you talking about back then, the 70s, a quarterback could go 12 of 19 for 194 yards and two touchdowns, and that was a fantastic game. Yeah. You know, now, nowadays, there's no such thing. You know, Dan Fouch, really, I guess he was the first guy I remember starting to throw the ball all over the place, and Eric Coriel with the uh, San Diego Chargers. Yes, they did once play in San Diego, boys and girls. Roger Staubach retired with the highest quarterback rating in NFL history at the time of his retirement in early after the 79 season. It was 83.4. That was his QB rating. And it lasted for a while until the 90s rolled around, Joe Montana rolled around, and guys started completing passes at a greater rate. But, you know, 83.4, you're one of the worst quarterbacks in the entire league now so uh, it's just uh, a, a, even if you don't like qb rating as a is a data point to you can compare that one data point to the current data point uh in modern day football so you had me thinking you're, you're trying to make me think of a game uh, a regular season game so a non-super bowl game right, we, we can all pick Steelers out the super bowl one. wins that's no fun gosh the steelers i'm sure no it isn't easy but I think back to the 2008 season, which did culminate in the Steelers winning the Super Bowl, and the Ravens were really good that year, um, and the Steelers swept them that year, and that famous 2008 championship game is one of the hardest-hitting games, really, in uh, it's remembered. It's one of the hardest-hitting games in NFL history, but the Ravens were really good that year. And the Steelers swept them. So I, I would point to those two games. I can't pick out the games as being memorable, but I remember that year being like, if they can beat the Ravens here, they might have a chance. And they beat them three times, Neither, n none of which were the Super Bowl, obviously. But those are some games that stand out. I remember a Monday night game, if I'm just thinking of other games, I remember a Monday night game in college. I'm sitting there, and it was Elway against Montana, Montana on the Chiefs. And Montana had a crazy comeback and threw a touchdown pass with seconds left. Do you remember this Monday night game? I remember the Monday night game. Was that when he was on KC, right? Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. I think I had Chiefs, a hockey Montana. game that night. I didn't, I didn't watch it live, but I came back and watched it after the game. And it was like, it was amazing because it was the two quarterbacks going at it, A. But B, you also knew that Montana was at the end. And to have that um, comeback, Joe Montana, was a really cool moment on a Monday night football game. I, I remember that being really cool. I, that one seared into my memory. As many regular season games as we watched, that one seared into my memory. As far as well, games that don't involve Dallas, um, I mean, the playoff game, once again, I, I go back uh, probably too far for most people. Uh, between the Dolphins and Chargers, you know, the Kellen Winslow game, the sure. – uh, yeah, that game was just fan playing. It wasn't a mud bowl, but it was a you know it was the way football should be played. Grass field, mud, dirt. It was it was just great. Uh, the the Jets, Miami, the mud bowl back in the day. I love games that are a mess. I always love games where it's rain. You don't see that nowadays because the fields are just too good. The drainage is too good. Now I now I need snow to really get there. But uh, I love games like that. I can remember Monday night games in Denver. You know, it just, it just came down snow. It might have been Denver Green Bay offhand, and you can't when you can't see the markers. I, I just love it. it well, the Steelers-Dolphins game is one of the most famous ones. Heinz Field's 
field for many years was atrocious. It was really unplayable. And they let Pitt play on there. And there was a game against the Dolphins on Monday Nighter where it poured rain. The Steelers had had high school football playoff games. The University of Pittsburgh played on it. And then that Monday night, they played the Dolphins. And the field was a mess. It rained so much, the players could pick up clumps of turf off the field. And there is a famously, the Steelers won the game 3 nothing, And there was a famous punt that went up into the air, <laughs> landed point first, and did not bounce. You, you'll see it. I'm sure you could YouTube it uh, in seconds. But uh, that, uh, not, yeah, uh, not for any good reason, but a game that I won't forget watching. Yeah, it's, it's like the uh, Soldier Field game. Sean Landetta goes back to punt, and the wind, whoop, he whiffs. The Fog yeah, Bowl uh, game. Fog, the Fog Bowl game, I can't say I enjoyed that because I couldn't see anything. No. I mean, he was like, oh, okay, I think that's a pass. I don't know. So I can't say I enjoyed that game. That was what, uh, Bears Memorable. and Eagles? Eagles, yeah. Yeah, I, I do remember that game. Uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, – football's had a lot of great games for different reasons through the years, whether you're looking for a great game or something extra, on the outside, weather that made a part of it or a specific play that made I mean, I can name several Barry Sanders plays where you think he's tackled and all of a sudden, whoop, he's gone. What, you know, what just happened here? You, you uh, if, if you're not paying attention over, it was a Sunday afternoon, you probably would have moved your head to another screen because you thought the play was over. All of a sudden, Barry's running uh, 50 yards. I know as a fantasy player, I hated Barry Sanders because he was the human vacuum. He'd be running free, yet somehow would always get tackled at the two-yard line and never get that touchdown. It yeah. always, I would, he infuriated me to no end because of that. Still one of the most fun players to watch in NFL history. So that's a little insight for me and George. We're fans at the heart of it, just like you are out there. Uh, hopefully it makes you think of some of your cool regular season games. So, George, I'll ask you before we get out of here on uh, this hour and this show, a football full circle, what are you going to watch this weekend? What am I going to watch this weekend? Well, no sports. Right? Uh, there won't be any sports. I, I, I'm not watching the – I don't watch the KBO. Um, I'll be aggravated with baseball. And the fact that I think this offer, the, uh, the union's going to turn it down. Or for the next week. You know, this is a, this is a Sunday morning maybe that probably we're airing. What are you going to watch for the next week? What shows are you watching? My wife and I are watching uh, Clone Wars, Star Wars. Uh, for those, that's the animation between after Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. Uh, I'm not a huge cartoon fan, but uh, George Lucas did this. So I want the storyline more than anything else. He's, he explained some things about her. Is after Sith Revenge of the Sith? No, it's before Revenge of the Sith. This would take place after Attack of the Clones and before Revenge of the Sith. Wow. So the idea is it shows you how Anakin Skywalker makes that change, how why he's becoming. Uh, well, I don't want to. Well, listen, if you don't know by now, I, nothing I can do for you. Anakin Skywalker how, becomes Darth Vader. What can does I do? explain how Hayden Christensen became a, a slightly better actor from uh, Episode Two to Episode Three because he kind of stepped it up. He was a lot better in Three. He, he was. Got, he got he was crushed better. for his performance in Two, but he was better in Three. Has he done anything else? Uh, yeah. But nothing, I don't think anything of note. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he doesn't have Natalie Portman's career, that's for sure. Uh, she's gone on to a lot uh, of things since uh, those movies. But I uh, appreciate everybody watching. On behalf of young and wise producer Brian Rakowski <laughs> and George Kurtz, our guest, right now. our guest, Rich Shermanello, I'm Mike Blewett. Thanks for watching Football Full Circle. We'll be back next week. Get on the grid. SportsGrid.com. Betting insights and entertainment at your fingertips 24-7 as our team covers the most important topics in sports wagering. Real-time odds, predictive betting models, expert picks, and more. Want the edge? Then get on the grid. SportsGrid.com.